0: His church in Port Charlotte, Florida. I had a summer internship there. I later on became on staff there. and It was a it was a great place to work. Uh, Sunshine was spelled with an O because we were very clever. Sunshine, and you'll get that letter later. But I had a roommate named James, and James is uh, he's is still a mystery today. He's a great guy. We were we were it's kind of towards the end of summer. We went by a gas station, and he goes, Oh, they sell hot dogs there. And I said, $50 hot dogs? What what in the world? Where did you get a $50 hot dog? I was perplexed. And that was way before inflation happened like it's happened lately. But uh, how do you get a $50 hot dog? And he told me, he said, uh, remember when we ate here right before we left camp? I didn't have enough money in my account and I overdrew on a hot dog and I got the fees. And so that ended up costing me $50 $50 for a hot dog, right? Overdraft will do that to you. We don't like overdraft fees. Nobody's going to vote for that, right? But you know our relationship with, with people can be like that. You know you can overdraft on your in your relationship with people. There's a sense in which, like relationships, we can put deposits into relationships, and then sometimes we can take withdrawals out on relationships. You guys know what I'm talking about a little bit? We, the best leaders... Uh, well, before I say that, sometimes you're obviously investing into people, right? And you're pouring into them, and you're loving them, and you're caring about them, and and then that's like depositing. And then sometimes you're asking something from them. You're asking them to do something, and that that can be like a withdrawal. And and the best leaders make more deposits than withdrawals, right? They, they invest more in people than they get out of people. And even when they're making withdrawals, it's best that they do that with the understanding that this isn't using another person, but helping that person do something bigger than, than ourselves and for the greater good. You ever have a leader that did that for you? That like, he got something out of out of you that you didn't think you could get out of yourself and he helped you to grow and that, that can happen. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, and today we start the last chapter, and I think you guys are a little bit too excited about that. Like, let's move on to something else. But it's okay. We're in Hebrews chapter number thirteen, and in Hebrews thirteen, uh, we get to a very practical part of the book. This book of Hebrews is a sermon written to the Hebrews, to Jewish people, and it has this this theme: Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. He's the greater revelation. He's the be, he's better than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's the better sacrifice. He's a better priest. He mediates a better covenant. Isn't that awesome? He, he's better in every way. His blood even speaks a better word than that of Abel. Abel is what we learned. That Jesus is better and Jesus being the son of God is worthy of our worship like do you worship Jesus yes we worship Jesus we worship God the father God the holy God the son and we worship in God the Holy Spirit and and this is what we do and this is who we are and and Hebrews tells us that's what we ought to do right and so in many ways this preacher wrote who wrote up this very long sermon, has told us about all the deposits that Jesus has made into our lives. Along the way, he's even warned us to live differently because of all of these realities, right? If Jesus is greater, if Jesus is better, if Jesus is deserving of our worship, let me ask you a question. Should we live differently because of that? Should the way that we live for him, honor him and please him and put him as priority in our lives, Of course that's the case. And so today we get to this last chapter where the author is getting really, really practical. No more theory. What does it look like to serve this Jesus, to please this Jesus, to put God ahead of everything in the way that we live our lives? How do we, do you want to please Jesus? I want to please him. I want him to, be, I, I want him to be pleased with me in the way that I live because he is deserving of everything good and great in my life. He is deserving of everything. And so today we get to this last chapter and he's being very descriptive. He's being very, very clear. Now, some people may read into this. Sometimes people think about God like God has these This will, he wants you to stop doing this and start doing this. And they kind of think of it as Jesus wants withdrawals from my life. He wants to take something from me. He doesn't want something for me. And can I tell you that nothing could be further from the truth? That when God, God tells us don't, it's for our good and for his glory. When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. Choose to sin, choose to suffer, right? When sin is finished, it brings forth death. And so he sets before us death and life. And he says, choose life. That's what I want for you. It's best for us to realize that Jesus Christ has deposited into our lives and to realize that when he asks for us to live to please him, it's best for us. And it's not simply a withdrawal for him. It's for us too. We should live to please him. And so my very simple proposition to you today is this. Because Jesus is greater, we should live to please him. Stop there. Because Jesus is greater, because he's God, because he's given us so much, we should live to please him. Do you believe that? The author of Hebrews points us in three directions to please Jesus in this passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verses one through eight. Here's the first direction. Direction number one is beside me, beside me. Loving in my relationships. If if we are loving God the way we ought to, it should reflect to how we love each other. Do you agree? You can't say I'm right with God this way if you're not right with your, your brethren this way. And you can't say you love your brethren this way the way you ought to if you're not loving God vertically the way you ought to. And so he goes right into it. Very practical, let me give it to you. Verse number one, here it is. Let brotherly love continue. Now, here's a very simple question. Who is the book of Hebrews written to? Hey, you got it. It's written to Hebrews, right? And when, they, when you say to a bunch of Hebrews, hey, we're all now, Jesus is greater. There's a better temple. There's a better sacrifice. You don't need the old priesthood. You have the new priesthood. You have all these things and then you still have these brothers who are Jewish, they might be tempted to think, well, so like being a Jew doesn't matter and having that brotherhood together doesn't matter. And he would say, actually, no. What does he say in verse one? Let brotherly love continue. You can still love other Jewish people. Not only that, you should love other Jewish people, Jews. That's what he's saying. This isn't, Now, Jesus is better and Jesus is greater, so we can do less, right? We can do more. He says, let brotherly love continue. Now, don't let the brevity, the shortness of this verse, keep you from pondering some deep and profound truth that could really impact your life. Four words explain it well, I believe, just this verse. Number one, imperative. This verse is an imperative. It's a command with a subject that is implied. The reader is the one who's supposed to let, like, you guys, you don't know what an imperative is, right? Those are the mom sentences. Clean your room. There's no, su- who here likes English grammar? I love, that's great, Amanda. We're on the same page. Absolutely. None of you like it. Okay, let me help you. In a sentence, there's subjects and verbs, right? Let is the, is the verb here. Who, who Let right? It's an understood you. It's the same as your mom. Clean your room. Well, who should clean their room? Who's she talking to? You. This is a command. Let brotherly love continue. Don't stop brotherly love from happening. Keep loving. So it's an imperative. Who is supposed to love people around us? Raise your hand if you're supposed to love people around you. Okay. This is not new to you. But if it isn't, hasn't been happening in your life, love people. People are more important than stuff. Amen. Did you hear that last week? We ought to love each other, so it's an imperative. What's love? This is an express love between people who have Christ in common. Those who know Christ and are in Christ. Jew and Gentile ought to love each other as members of the incredible family of God. Jesus told his disciples, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By those really cool Christian t-shirts at the bookstore. <laughs> is that what it said? No, how are they supposed to know that we are his disciples? By our love one for another. The distinguishing mark of Trinity Baptist Church ought to be a love for God and a love for each other. We got to, like, we're in a competition to out love each other. That's what we ought to be. Who agrees? Okay. If you don't agree, I want you to agree by the end of the sermon. We ought to love each other. The, the word you have imperative, you have love. Here you have this idea of permission. The word let means that nothing should be done that would hinder this love. It means that we should prioritize love over preference, over frustration, or anything else. That means that when I submit, I put others ahead of myself. That's what that means. And then there's this assumption. You have imperative, it's a command, you have love, that's what we're ought to be doing. You have this permission. Don't let anything keep you from doing it. Then you have this assumption: If love is continuing, then love was there before, right? It's already happening. As this was written to the Hebrews, the context might be implying that though there is another new covenant and the Gentiles now partake in this covenant, that does not mean that the love for their brethren stops. Now that brotherhood is not merely ethnic. Now it's part of all who we are people of faith in, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We ought to let that love continue. And so there are things that can hinder love in our relationships. This isn't in your notes, but you may write this down. There's some things that can hinder love, pride over humility, When when it's all about you and it's not about somebody else, it kills love. You agree with me? Selfishness over generosity. Wanting what you want over what others want. Anger over gentleness. It's okay to be angry. The Bible says to be angry and sin not, but there's times where anger can destroy love if it's not kept unchecked. And then hatred over kindness. Just hatred. These are the enemies of love and the right kind of Familial unity. The, the, the way that we battle these sins that, hinderly, uh, that hinder brotherly love is through being filled with the spirit. And that means staying in the word, abiding in Christ, praying in Christ, and allowing him to control us through defeating temptation. That's critical, not just for our relationship with God, but it's for our relationship in the brotherhood. Your walk with the Lord impacts our church. Not your, your relationship with God impacts our church and how we ought to do life together. So there's a beside loving towards my brethren. The first one is with the brethren. The second one is with strangers. With strangers. Look at verse number two. He says this, be not forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby thereby have some entertained uh, angels unaware. Now this doesn't mean I'm going to give a very vague reference. Who remembers the guy who kept seeing the bullfrog in the Bugs Bunny cartoons? <laughs> Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. That's got a high-class content you get at Trinity Baptist Church. Okay. <laughs> Verse number two, and it says, be careful to entertain strangers. It doesn't mean that, hey, I don't know you, let me sing you a song. That's not what it means. The word entertain here is uh, pholoxenia. It's the same word used in Romans 12:13 for hospitality. Okay, And so hospitality was especially important in the first century for everyone and especially for Christians. Travel wasn't as easy as it is today in our country. We have highways and hotels and exits and chain restaurants. When we travel, right? You even know what to expect at the restaurant you could go to if you're, if you're going, right? Um, here's an app for you. If next time you travel, look up iExit. It's an app, and you can literally look at every exit and what's coming up, right? And it's so cool. Like, that's for free. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> traveling in cars is pretty, in that day, traveling was difficult. There were the Roman roads that would made it a lot easier than it was before, but it definitely was not the same. And in the first century, these things largely did not exist and as available as they are today. When Christians were persecuted, a lot of times they were dispersed. So when they, they started to have people going at them because of their faith, they, there were times that it got so bad that they had to leave town. And, As a result, their very survival could be dependent on the kindness of strangers to make food, water, and shelter available to them without much notice or planning. The preacher gives a reason for the hospitality beyond those that I have mentioned here. He says that some who have given hospitality to strangers have entertained angels unawares. This could have been a reference back to Abraham. Go back and read Genesis if you want to find out more about that. I don't believe that he was giving the exclusive reason why we should be hospitable to strangers. Though people have entertained angels without even knowing it, like Abraham and Sarah, Lot, Gideon, I believe the ultimate motivation is that God could use us in amazing ways when we're open to helping people in need, people that are in need. Now, in our culture, Schindlers and shysters have made some of us jaded when it comes to opportunities to help people in need. While we need to be discerning about just handing people money, believers need to be quick and ready to give when when God allows us to see needs that people have. Recently, I had someone that connected to us and Finley and uh, someone that just needed a lot of help. And I was in a moment where they needed help quick. And um, somebody in in my world Heard me, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do. They need, they need help. And and uh, a person in our church, pastor, say no more. He took out his wallet, pulled out 50 bucks and handed it to me and said, give them that. And I said, what, what? He goes, no, no, no. I keep $50 in my wallet and I ask God, show me when this 50 bucks is needed in somebody's life. That's what he prayed for and he's like, God, I'm asking God to show me where I, where I can be a blessing. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Just like, I'm just ready to do good for people who are in need. Say no more, pastor, here you go. That's awesome. I think that's the flavor here. I, I don't even know this person really well, but they have a need and I can meet the need. Isn't that cool? It's better to give than to receive. Man, what an amazing thing. I think that's a really, really cool And that speaks to the heart of this verse. Be ready to help those in need when God brings the opportunity to your attention. Why? We don't know until heaven exactly how God will use us to bless other people. So not just the brethren that I know, but even strangers that I don't. Here's a third one. With those persecuted, look at verse three. Remember them that are in bonds as, this is huge, as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Now, there's a connection here between verse 2 and verse 3. Being hospitable to those who are in need of hospitality, especially because of persecution, seemed to be the emphasis in verse 2. He had a couple, maybe two situations in mind. People in bonds here. He says, remember those that are in bonds. Bonds are literally in shackles. People that are in prison Okay? So these are people that, that got caught, that are hurt, that are, that are suffering for righteousness' sake. Especially people who are of faith. This would have included people like the Apostle Paul. He related all of the persecution and the experienced in his letter to the Corinthians where he said, this is Paul talking about 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one. 21. I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak, howbeit whenever, uh, whensoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labor is more abundant. Here it is. in stripes above measure. And prisons more frequent. And deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A, day, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils by in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness beside those things that are without. He says, if you think that's a list, here's another burden I have. That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul's somebody that went through it. Who thinks that would be a great book? Yeah, it's called Acts. Go read Acts. It's a great book, okay? And, and one day we'll find out more. Did Paul go through a bunch? And he's saying what the, the, the preacher, the author of Hebrews is saying is, remember them in our minds. And he says, as, how do, how do you remember them? As bound with them. Well, what does that mean? Here's a question. If you were in jail today, do you think that, w- that might be on your mind? That you're in jail? You're like, where am I again? Oh yeah, I'm in jail. If you're in jail, you probably remember, I'm in jail. You know what I'd be praying if I was in jail? Get me out of here! That's what I'd be praying. God, help, <laughs> right? Here's the thing. Sometimes we live in a country where we have all kinds of freedom. Are you with me? And we have the freedom to worship today. We have the freedom to share the gospel. We have the freedom to do what we are. But there have been times in history and times even today in our culture where people are paying the price for following Jesus. Where people Do not have that freedom, but are obedient to God more than to men and are sharing the gospel and they're in bonds. And what he's saying is um, the way that you think about them is as if they were you, as if you were bound with them. How do you remember people that are in the body? He even says it, right? Doesn't he say it in the verse Verse three? He talks about, and then which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. How would you pray if you were being persecuted? How would you pray if you were in chains? Instantly and constantly, that's how we should pray for them. How would you seek relief in those situations? We would do everything we should and everything we could. And that's the way we ought to think. That's what he's saying. Think about people like that. That's tough, isn't it? I don't think about persecuted people all the time. And I think we ought to remember to pray for people. There are times where even in, As we do life together, there are people, like there are people this week who lost loved ones. The Bible says rejoice with them who do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And there ought to be times where our heart is not callous. Our heart is tender to what people are going through and what they're dealing with. We got to have a heart for them. There are three situations where this kind of thing is experienced today. Missionaries on foreign fields. Uh, people in our church who are experiencing health, relational, financial challenges, uh, uh, people that we don't even know of where that happens. We're not yet in the place where, we, where there's some prominent religious intolerance in the States that leads us to prison. That may yet come. It does happen prevalently all over the world and we must do what we can to help those in need. So you have, you have love towards brethren beside me, love towards uh, persecuted those in bonds, here's the last, here's another one, with my spouse, with my spouse, who also feel persecuted at times. No, I'm joking, that's a joke. <laughs> Verse four, here it is. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. I love doing weddings. When I have the opportunity, it's a beautiful thing. I actually wrote some of this right after doing a wedding. So many things happen during these events, a rehearsal, a ceremony, and a reception. Family and friends gather, some as old friends, others beginning lifelong relationships where they might share children and grandchildren. The event can be many things, but it's at its funda- fundamental essence is the bringing of two people, two lives, and one covenant together. There's the exchanging of vows. Have you Thought about the vows lately? Here's what it here's what it says. I, groom, take you, bride, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better. Oh, you remember that part. (laughs) We like to remember the better and forget the worse. For richer in sickness and in health to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. That's the vow. There's also exchanging of rings that sets forth a symbol of this covenant. This ring is a token of my love for you. With this ring, I pledge my life and all I have to you. With this ring, I thee wed. Marriage is covenantal. It's covenantal it is by necessity a covenant between a man and a woman. If it is a covenant between any other parties, it is by definition no longer marriage. Marriage is God's idea. He set it forth in the garden. Read with me in Genesis 2.18. And the Lord said, this is it. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. The word meet is the word appropriate for or compatible with and must needs be woman if it's a man. It takes a man and a woman to become one and reproduce. This is the idea. Look at how God revealed how he created woman and brought them together in Genesis 2.21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh thereof instead. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In Genesis 2, we're told that this is how God made woman for man and man for woman. We're told that the reason why, it's not good that man should be alone. Man, I'm glad I'm not alone. I got Jesus, but I also got Megan. That's awesome. She is an amazing wife. She's an amazing person. I could not do what I do here without her. She ministers to this church so well because of how she ministers to me and to my family and how she ministers to you all. I'm so grateful for her. It's not good that man should be alone. Genesis 2 also tells us that it means for us today. The author goes from telling us what happened to giving us an explanation of the fact that God's decision in the garden with Adam and Eve is the foundation of what happens today in marriage. It's the first therefore in Genesis. He says in verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. Moms and dads produce children. They raise children. Then the children are sent to find a help meet for them. That's God's plan. This is the pattern he set up. He created it. He ordained it. He calls it Good. And in our passage today the scripture says that when it comes to marriage, the bed is undefiled. This means that sexual pleasure in the exclusive context context of marriage between that man and that woman is God's gift to the married couple. And that's the basis has basis in Genesis 2 as well. In in 2:25, and they were both naked the man and his wife and were not ashamed. There should be no shame in a man and a woman in covenant of marriage enjoying each other in the way that God created. It should be done in love with the husband thinking about his wife and the wife considering her husband. Mutual submission to each other in every way is the essence of marriage. And in this area, it is a beautiful gift of God. There's no shame in it. Conversely, conversely there should be shame. There should be shame in nakedness between People who are not married. There are parts of our bodies that are reserved for our spouse. They're not for everyone. They're for our husband and for our wife. Back to Hebrews. God promises something here to whoremongers and adulterers. People who trample on this intention about sexuality. Not viewing it as or treating it with the sacred and exclusivity that God intended. And he says, what happens to them is that they'll be judged. God's view of human sexuality is clear. Marriage is the domain for sexual expression. One man and one woman in covenant relationship for one lifetime is the definition of marriage and it's a beautiful thing. And if you're feeling like judged today, just know that I'm in this passage because last week I was in the passage before. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. God's law is for you it's for you. The implications are clear and vast. We should avoid anything that is sexual with anyone other than our spouse, one our husband or our wife. We should give ourselves to our spouse's emotionally, relationally, and physically in selfless love. We should define marriage the way God defines it, one man and one woman for a lifetime. We should not let culture define differently for us what God has already clearly defined. We should flee fornication. That includes every kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. Lust, pornography, adultery, cohabitation, unbiblical divorce and remarriage, homosexuality, transgenderism, bestiality, or polygamy. Is that clear? It's everything outside of God's definition of marriage. And it's like, it's like fire. It's great in the fireplace. Anywhere else, it'll burn your house down. There are people that say, man, that stuff's all over the Bible, especially the Old Testament. The truth is that the Bible is often descriptive rather than prescriptive. What do I mean? It's not describing what should happen. It's not prescribing what should happen. It's describing what did happen. And in fact, when you see these things happen in the Old Testament, you often see the pain and heartache that comes with doing those things outside of the boundaries that God has set. And so if I'm going to please the Lord, Jesus Christ with my life, I must consider those beside me. I must live with others ahead of myself, the brethren that I know and those that I don't. I weep with those who weep and I rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm quick to help when people need help and have a right prioritization of my relationships with my spouse being the number one human relationship in my life if I'm married. That makes sense? Your relationship with your spouse is more important than any other relationship human in your life. There's one ahead of them and that's God. Then your spouse, then your kids, after your spouse. After your spouse. After your grandkids. After. And your spouse comes after Jesus. Jesus first. Jesus is greater. that help? I hope it helped. Here's direction number two. We've talked about beside me, now let's look inside me. Inside me, choosing contentment and courage. Here's what it says. Let your conversation, conversation means lifestyle, the way that you live your life, okay? So not just your words, but your actions, how you live. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The preacher here says that our manner should, be, should exclude covetousness. Covetousness is greed, greed. Greed should not be a part of our lifestyle. Rather than greed or covetousness, our manner should be contentedness. We should be satisfied with what God has given to us. Look at the argument he makes for contentedness here. He quotes God the Father who said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What's the connection? Why is that the argument? Anybody notice your stuff can leave? Anybody notice that? Who has their first car? Yeah. People who like to rebuild their cars and the high schoolers over here who just got their first car. Everybody else doesn't have their first car. You know why? They don't last. I could be old old. they don't last like they used to. Even the ones they used to didn't last that long. Are you with me? Cash for clunkers, right? That's how that goes. Why is there an argument here then for contentedness? We do not have to worry that we will not have enough because God has promised to be with us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean? I'm not gonna lack. He leads me beside streams of still waters and takes me into green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, it's based on his reputation. How's your God? My God's a God that takes care of me, right? So is it more important to have the shepherd or stuff? Man, this is shepherd every time. He spoke the world into creation, right? He does not lack. So we don't have to be worried that we'll not have enough. If we have the Lord and find our satisfaction in him, we have enough. Stuff goes away. Stuff will let us down, but God never will. If this is our disposition, if this is our conversation, the way we live, he says we can depend and lean on the Lord. Well, I'd be to say two things. Do you see the two things? The Lord is my helper. Can you say that? I didn't mean for you to say it. You actually said it. You guys are like on it today. I'm asking you specifically, are you living as if, hey, God's my helper? That's what I'm asking. Here's another one. Can you say, I will not fear what man can do to me? You want to do it so bad. Anybody here ever deal with fear? Man, fearing other people? Are you kidding? You guys are scary sometimes. <laughs> and you ought not be. Perfect love casts out fear. But if I'm not dependent on the Lord, sometimes I think that other people are my provision. No, God is. And so when I'm content, I can say the Lord's my helper. When I I realize that what I have comes from God, then I can properly thank him and then I can properly live valuing him first and loving others. I don't want to fear. It seems as if fear of man showing up in our lives may be a signal that we're not depending on the Lord as we ought to. Now there's a difference between improper fear and concern. If a rattlesnake started coming across the stage right now, the service would be over. Are you with me? Scott would have to help me out a little bit. Right? So it's okay to have, there's a right kind of concern. God gave that to us. But a fear of man, an irrational fear, shows me that I'm not depending on the Lord like I ought. And so... Our manner in that moment may be that we're not content. In a culture where we have everything available to us, we should stop and ask ourselves, do I really need that? Do I really need that? Have you thought that lately? Do I really need that? It's not wrong to have things, but it's wrong when things have us. Will we be content in our relationship with Christ? So, The direction beside me is to love those around me. The direction in me is contentedness and courage in Christ. Here's the last one. Direction ahead of me. Direction number three is ahead of me. Imitating Christ-like leaders. Now this is where the fear of God comes in for me. Because look at what he tells people. Verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. In verses five and six, the preacher commands the reader to consider the conversation, which means again, the manner of living. He tells them to live a life without greed and without contentment, looking to Jesus to simply, to supply their needs and to give help. In verse 7, he gives them the practical advice of making sure to find good examples, namely people who have spiritual stewardship. And here he says, people who rule over you, who give to you the word of God. Here he's definitely speaking, at least in application, to the elder, bis- pastor, bishop. We know that is the position because the qualifier who hath spoken unto you the word of God. There are two biblical offices in the church that still function today that are named in the scriptures. There's the office of deacon and the office of pastor. And three terms are used interchangeably when when it comes to the office of, of pastor, elder, and bishop. In this verse, the preacher calls the reader to remember them and to follow Their faith, it says, and then it says to consider the end of their conversation. The main point is this, that the pastor is not only to be the preacher of the word, but also the example of living out the word of God. It is one thing to hear the word of God taught. That's critical. That is a critical thing. It's yet another thing to see the word of God lived out. We all need examples and the pastor ought to be a living example of how our faith ought to be lived out. And he's not the only one. In our church context, those who lead in teaching the word also include Sunday school teachers and discipleship group leaders in our context. Notice here that it demands discernment by the reader. He says, whose faith follow. This is similar to what Paul said when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. When Jesus said, follow me, he says, you can imitate everything about Jesus. Are you with me? To follow Jesus, like we need to know everything about him and do everything he does. Paul says, not follow me, follow me as I follow Christ. So there's a discernment, right? Um, He says here, a sense in which that's what he's saying when he says, considering the end of their conversation, what is the outcome of the faith that they live out? Think about what their life will look like when they live out their faith and point your life in that same direction. To which I say, there's a little scariness to that for me because it is way easier to preach than it is to live. Are you with me? You ever feel that way? Have you ever heard this term, practice what you preach? God's called me to do that. At the same time, I will say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. When I was studying this passage, it was back in December before the church's anniversary. I was at the church at that time looking at some of the historical documents that are being displayed there. And I came across a letter that our church's founding pastor sent to the church family upon his retirement. He pastored our church for over 50 years. How cool is that? And was known for his faithful evangelism, doctrine, and shepherding. As I consider this text, it was right after I had read this letter. And I want to read some of it to you. Here's what he said. This was in January 6, 2003, about 20 years ago, 21 years ago. My beloved church family, Dorothy and I want to express our thanks to you for the tremendous 50th anniversary celebration. You did an outstanding job. We want to especially thank David, the staff, the officers of Trinity Baptist. Several have asked me of late, Pastor, when are you retiring? I wish to inform you, Gene Milioni will never retire. I will always be active in the Lord's work. Trinity Baptist is a terrific church with a great staff, officers, and the very best people in the area. All of you mean so much to Dorothy and I. Soon I will be 76 years old, and I believe it's time for Trinity Baptist to call a younger man to take the helm. I'll be moving to Tecumseh, Michigan. I want my dear sweetheart to live close to my son, should God take me. I will keep my membership at Trinity Baptist and assist the new pastor in any way he decides. My future plans are to hold evangelistic crusades, mission conferences, etc. This is absolutely the hardest decision of my life. I have been your pastor for over 50 years and we love those that God has given us to shepherd. We will never forget you. We love you and thank you all for 50 wonderful years. You are the greatest. Isn't that awesome? I love the tenderness and love expressed in this letter. There's a love for the Lord. There's a love for his work. There's a love expressed for the people of our church. There's a thoughtfulness for planning out a future leadership. There's the ability to leave at the end of giving an entire life to staying and working in one place with no scandal, with integrity, not perfect, but faithful. Isn't that good? I'm considering his end and I praise the Lord about how he was used. This was a man worth imitating in so many ways. And I hope that I can have that same kind of faith in the Lord in the coming days. With that being said, no man, no pastor, no discipleship group leader, no Sunday school teacher, however impactful in our lives is perfect. We all fall short in many ways. We look at what is imitatable and we imitate that because it's valuable. But look at the next verse. This is it. Are you with me? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. While while speaking about considering our own lifestyle and looking at the example of our Bible-saturated leaders we are reminded in the verse of the unchanging, impeccable character and person of Jesus Christ. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is the same. Why? Because being perfect means by definition being unchanging. There's no deficiency in his character, in his person, or his performance. He existed before there was time. He became flesh and dwelt among us and he was full of grace and truth. He will sit on David's throne, ruling forever and ever and ever and ever. And so the best that I can say to you is to follow me as I follow the unchanging Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. When human examples fail us, we must remember that Jesus never fails. He is the ultimate example and worthy of every worship and praise that we can give to him. He will never change. And in a world in need of changing, that is a really, really good Thing, Because Jesus Christ is greater, we should live to please him. Loving those beside us. Choosing inside of us to have contentment and courage and ahead of us following people as they follow Jesus Christ. And what I want to say to you is, The pastor's not the only one responsible for how they live and how they influence. There are people that are watching you, that are imitating you. Can you tell somebody else, follow me as I follow Christ? Can you tell your wife or your husband, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Can you tell your kids, hey, follow me as I follow Christ? Do you have somebody that you're helping you to follow Jesus? I hope that you do. Isn't God good? Let's pray together.